Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 5.58 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 19th of July, 2021. This is episode 457 of Bitcoin, and I'm printing money, baby. Not the way you think of it, but uh, I'm, I am propagating plants that I already own. So, why am I starting out this way? Because the money printers are going burr, you might as well make your own money printer go burr. Um, if you got a, like a farmer's market or something that you can leverage, you know, and you've got some time on your hands and you just want to try your hand at it, um, selling plants at a farmer's market is not a terrible way. I mean, it's not actually, it's not a waste of time at all. And it's not a terrible waste of time. It can be lucrative if you can move, if you can produce and move the merchandise, then you got something there. And I start, I just, I don't know, man, I just got this thing that I got a bug a few weeks ago where I started propagating some of my comfrey. And it was like, I was turning one plant into 72 plants. One in one into 74 is one hell of a production. Okay. So I've been so successful at doing that. Now I haven't sold them. I'm just, I'm planting them around in places that I, that I really need to have some comfrey because it's a good fertilizer. It makes a great mulch. So you just, you chop it, you drop it. It's easy. I mean, it's pretty easy to grow. It's easy to propagate. It is almost indestructible. And the one that I have is called a Bocking 14. So it does not set seed and it does not spread laterally. So it's not invasive. And the thing about it is, is that the leaves comprise about 40% protein. And protein basically means nitrogen. And I won't get into why, but just trust me on this. I, I, I got a degree in molecular biology. Believe me, I, I know about a little bit about proteins. Lots of nitrogen in there. So if you cut the plant at the top after it's fully after it's grown for the season or what or grown for the first part of the season and just lay it on lay it on whatever it is you want to mulch as as it breaks down, it actually nitrifies the soil. Now here's the thing: <clears throat> comfrey is a plant that will uh, puts on more biomass than almost any other crop ever known to humans. You can chop this thing and it will you can chop the top of it and in like four weeks it'll be completely back and you do it again and you can do it like five times depending on your growing season anywhere between three and five to maybe even six times a year and it when I mean a lot of biomass I mean I'm pulling pounds of it off of a plant a single plant will yield multiple pounds of nitrogen-rich mulch. This also got a whole bunch of micronutrients in it. So I started thinking to myself, well, what else do I have that's a useful plant around here that I might be able to learn how to propagate? And lo and behold, there's my gumi berry, which is a plant that grows to about six feet to eight feet tall, depending on the variety. 
and is about six to eight feet wide and puts on these really pretty little berries that are edible. Some people believe they're delicious. Other people don't like them so much, but the birds definitely disagree with the latter. They will just go after them hand over fist. But I took a big old cane off of one that I started growing this spring and because it grew and bolted so fast, I figured, hey, if, if all the specimens that I'm gonna to try to clone off, it's gonna be this one. And I set out, after I finished, I set out 36 uh, rootings. So just by cutting the stem in, in a particular way and dipping it in, in uh, the pieces in rooting hormone and throw them in, throwing them into some potting soil and putting them under light, we'll, we shall see. So if I'm successful at that, then I can go start looking around for something else to put in my portfolio. And the gummy berry, if it works, is the third in my portfolio because I've been propagating the shit out of black locust trees and getting real good at it. So if I can take like, you know, black locust tree starts, comfrey starts, and um, gummy berry starts <clears throat> down to the local uh, farmer's market, I might be able to pull down some 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 uh, fiat bullshit to convert into some Satoshis, right? Anyway, just think about it. There's also, <clears throat> there's a lot of good books about plant propagation. It's kind of fun. Some of it's easy. Some of it's frustrating. It depends on, you know, which, which plant you're picking. But, you know, hey, if they can make their money printers go burr, so can we. Now, on to the news. And the morning roundup is four North American Bitcoin miners that could benefit from the east-west shift. Osato Ava Namoyo is writing this one for Cointelegraph. Even before China finally wielded the ban hammer on crypto mining, Bitcoin miners in North America have been building up their capacity amid efforts <clears throat> to gain a larger share of the global hash rate distribution. From building bigger data centers to acquiring hardware inventories, these establishments have been making concerted efforts to balance the hash power dichotomy between East and West hemispheres. North American Bitcoin miners often have to contend with energy usage concerns as well, and some have been keen to partner with oil and gas firms, becoming buyers of last resort for flared gas. Indeed, American oil drillers and Bitcoin mining firms continue to collaborate over natural gas utilization, proving once again that the potential for Bitcoin's thermodynamic capacity is set to be a net positive for the environment despite the criticisms put forward against proof-of-work mining. With North American-based entities seemingly on the cusp of establishing a greater presence in the global Bitcoin mining matrix, here is a look at four of the largest miners in the region. <clears throat> Riot Blockchain. In 2020, China still controlled about 65% of the global Bitcoin hash rate, according to estimates from several data sources. However, Riot Blockchain was expanding its operations with a swath of major hardware acquisitions from leading Bitcoin miners like or Bitcoin miner makers like Bitmain. In August and December of 2020 alone, Riot Blockchain spent millions of dollars to acquire thousands of ant miners from Bitmain. Indeed, as reported by Cointelegraph in April, Riot Blockchain's hashing capacity increased by 460% in 2020. They expand, their expanded inventory drive has continued into 2021 with the company purchasing over 42,000 ant miners from Bitmain earlier this year. The NASDAQ-listed company also announced a $650 million purchase of a major data center located in Texas. <clears throat> By acquiring the Windstone data center in Texas, Riot Blockchain is set to own the single largest Bitcoin mining facility in the United States. 
The American Bitcoin mining giant is even set to expand the original capacity of the site from 750 megawatts to over 1,000 megawatts. With its upscaled capacity coinciding with sweeping crackdowns in China, it is unsurprising to see Riot Blockchain enjoying greater Bitcoin mining success as evidenced by the figures quoted in its monthly production and operations update. In April, the company reported that it mined 187 Bitcoin worth $11.2 million at the time the previous month. The March 2021 BTC production figure marked an 80% increase in, or sorry, increase from its Bitcoin mining total from March 2020. In its latest report in June, the company stated it mined 243 BTC, which is a 406% increase from its June 2020 production figures. The June report also put Riot Blockchain's year-to-date Bitcoin mining total at 1,167 BTC, currently worth $36.5 million. As of June 2020, the company had only mined 508 BTC, meaning that this year's production figures represent a 130% year-over-year increase. In total, Riot Blockchain says it holds over 2,200 BTC as of the end of June, with all the Bitcoin coming from its mining operations. Detailing the link between its recent production success and the situation in China, the June report stated, quote, the exodus of Bitcoin mining from China has resulted in a downward difficulty adjustment and lower global network hash rate. As such, Riot is currently mining more Bitcoin per day than in any other time in the company's history. Wow. So moving to Marathon, uh, is arguably Riot Blockchain's main competitor in the North American hash wars, and like its rival, the crypto mining giant has been expanding its hardware inventory since 2020. In October, they acquired 10,000 amp miner S19 Pros from Bitmain. Such was the size of the order that it was estimated to boost the company's operational hash rate capacity to 2.5 exahashes per second, a little more than the target 2.3 exahashes per second for Riot Blockchain's expansion. With the amp miner order arriving in batches for Marathon, the company seems to now be focusing on achieving carbon neutrality and satisfying regulatory demands. Back in March, the company first announced plans to divert all of its current hash power to a regulatory compliant mining pool by the start of May. At the time, Marathon stated that the new pool adhered to AML KYC protocols established by America's Office of Foreign Control. You freaking scumbags. As reported by Cointelegraph in May, Marathon is planning a 300-megawatt carbon-neutral data center that will house 73,000 Bitcoin miners. According to the announcement at the time, the deployment of the facility will bring the company's carbon neutrality to about 70% <coughs> while taking its hash rate to 10.37 exahashes per second. According to data from BTC.com, achieving a hash rate capacity of 10 exahashes per second would put Marathon number five on the current Bitcoin hash rate distribution log. While more than 50% down from its 2021 high of $56.56, the company's stock is still up 122% year to date. Holy shit, dude. Marathon itself is a Bitcoin holder. Separate from its mining interest, at the start of the year, the company bought over 4,800 BTC, valued at about $150 million at the time. New York Digital Investment Group reportedly facilitated that deal. Moving on to HUD-8. United States-based firms are not the only major players in the North American Bitcoin mining theater. As Canadian outfit, HUD-8 is also a significant name in the conversation. 
Once the largest publicly traded Bitcoin miner by capacity back in 2018, the Toronto-based company seems to be recovering from its previous setbacks. In 2018, the crypto market suffered a crippling bear market <clears throat> as coin prices tumbled from peaks reached in December of 2017 and January 2018. In May 2019, HUT-8 reported losses north of $136 million for the previous year, which also culminated in significant staff cuts. Having waded through the crypto winter of 2018 and 2019, HUT-8 has undergone a massive upscaling of its mining hardware, announcing the purchase of over 11,000 micro-BT rigs valued at about $44 million. God, God, the money involved in this shit, dude. Based on the capacity of the micro-BT miners, HUD-8's hash rate capacity is expected to reach 2.5 exahashes per second once all the machines are installed in the company's 100-megawatt facility, which is currently under construction. Back in January, the Canadian Bitcoin miner estimated that its total Bitcoin holdings will reach 5,000 BTC by the start of 2022. The company also outlined plans to expand its hash rate to 6 exahashes per second by mid-2022. And ending with Hive blockchain, the east-west shift in Bitcoin hash rate will ultimately involve sweeping changes to the energy mix for BTC mining, with more of an emphasis on green Bitcoin. Oh, yay! For the Canadian crypto miner, green energy is a major focus point for its operations. From Canada to Iceland and even to Sweden, Hive blockchain operated green energy power data centers for crypto mining back in May. The company was reportedly forced to sell its facility in Norway, citing issues with regulators in the, in the country. Earlier in July, Hive acquired 3,000 micro-BT M30S miners for its facility in New Brunswick, Canada. The added hash power will reportedly be contributed to the Foundry USA pool that already aggregates hashing potential for one, or sorry, from other major North American miners like HUD-8, BlockCap, and BitFarms, among others. Hive's additional 3,000 mining rigs will reportedly take the company's hashing potential up by 0.264 exahashes per second to reach a total hash rate of 0.83 exahashes. The company also recently joined the ranks of publicly traded Bitcoin mining firms after securing a NASDAQ listing back in June. Meanwhile, Griffin Digital Mining, which is another U.S.-based miner, may soon be challenging the more established names in the North American BTC mining industry. The company, which claims to run on 100% renewable energy, recently purchased 7,200 Antminer S19J Pro mining rigs Based on the hashing capacity of the machines, Griffin's hash rate will approximately increase by about 0.72 exahashes per second. The new inventory will reportedly be installed in August, and upon that time, the company <clears throat> will receive its ESG rating. All right, so that was a mouthful. I, I, I get that, but here's, here's the deal. <clears throat> this doesn't, I mean, <clears throat> for the prices dropping and all the bullshit that we're experiencing right now, it doesn't look like these people are too much swayed <coughs> by the conditions on the ground. They know something. What do they know? They know that this is, I think, I don't know. I kind of think we've entered a bear market. It was fun, you know, and I'm not bearish. It's just that I'm just looking at the prices and I'm just like seeing the, like the stuff that we have to wade through and it's going to be a long slog. And maybe, yeah, I hope we, you know, the price goes up. I always hope that the, you know, the number goes up, but, you know, reality at one point or another, I have to take a look at it. And 
you know, when I'm just looking at charts and I'm just looking at word on the street and I'm just looking at what that idiot Janet the felon Yellen is saying, I can't help but to be bearish uh, or at least look at the at look at this whole market as a bear market. And then I read something like this. We got four major miners in North America that basically do not give shit one and they are piling in. They are piling in and it's the stuff like this, signals like this that are on the ground that I look to to kind of temper the bullshit that I'm seeing that we're having to wade through. So uh, you take it for what it's worth. <clears throat> let's, let's do this one. High profile Ethereum co-founder quits crypto over safety concerns. Martin Young has it for Cointelegraph. Let me just preface this with saying Satoshi Nakamoto left two years into the project. Probably a reason he did that. Ethereum co-founder Anthony DeLorio has announced his intention to exit the crypto industry, expressing concerns over his personal safety. <clears throat> According to a July 17 report from Bloomberg, DeLorio is looking to sell his digital asset firm Decentral and sever ties with all other crypto projects he is currently involved with, stating that he no longer feels safe as a result of his elevated profile within the crypto sector. Quote, it's got a risk profile that I am not too enthused about. I don't necessarily feel safe in this space. If I was focused on larger problems, I think I'd be safer. <coughs> what, larger problems? Okay, whatever. Hailing from a background in web development, Delorio was among the eight co-founders who began working on Ethereum in 2014. He served as chief digital officer of the Toronto Stock Exchange in 2016 and is focused on venture capital investing and startup advising in recent years. In 2016, the 48-year-old Canadian entrepreneur founded blockchain company Decentral, which operates Jax Liberty, a multi-platform uh, platform cryptocurrency wallet that boasts a user base of more than 1 million since 2017, he's traveled with a security team. Oh, he got diapers. Oh, he's wearing some diapers. In 2018, Forbes estimated his net worth to be as much as $1 billion, featuring Delorio in its crypto rich list for the year. During the same year, Delorio was further cast into the limelight after buying the largest condo in Canada for $22 million and using crypto for part of the payment. Oh my God. Delorio now expects to sell Decentraland for hundreds of millions of rug pulls. Rug pulls, that's what the, this, a huge rug pull, dude. He's exiting, he's getting out. God, dude, if, you, uh, if you're an Ethereum holder, man, this is why we, that's, this is why we constantly pre preach Bitcoin because of shit like this, all right? So anyway, he, he expects to sell Decentraland for hundreds of millions of dollars highlighting that he will only accept either cash or equity in another company for settlement and will not consider offers made in any cryptocurrency. How's that for you? How's that grab you? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. This is why, this is why Satoshi left. This is why he left. He made the right choice. You should just not even be in the limelight, honestly. God. The entrepreneur also emphasized he does not wish to invest in blockchain startups moving forward. In a bid to be more uh, philanthropic, Delorio has joined Project Arrow, which plans to build Canada's first zero-emission vehicle, with the entrepreneur asser asserting that crypto can only assist with the small number of the world's problems, 
quote, I want to diversify to not being a crypto guy, but being a guy tackling complex problems. I will incorporate crypto when needed, but a lot of times it's not. <laughs> it's really a small percentage of what the world needs. End quote. Of Ethereum's eight co-founders, only Vitalik Buterin is still actively working on the blockchain pro platform. Charles Hoskinson and Gavin Wood have started rival blockchains, namely Cardano and Polkadot. Mihai Elise and Joseph Lubin started firms to focus on Ethereum applications and development, launching Akasha Project and Consensus, respectively. The remaining founders, Amir Chetrit and Jeffrey Wilkie, have made similar moves to Delorio by exiting crypto to focus on other industries. Dude, your entire, your entire like founder stack has evaporated since 2015. That's six years. They got, they got tired of it after six years. They took your money. If you bought into Ethereum, they took your money and they ran off with it. And the only person left is Vitalik. How long do you think it's going to be before Vitalik says sayonara? And with the latest, you know, this latest bullshit of them delaying the, uh, the difficulty bomb until late 2022 because they just can't get their shit together. I don't know, man. I, I expect him to be gone either right before that or if they do actually transition to proof of stake, him to be gone very quickly after that and just completely bail on you guys or any of you guys that are listening that bought into Ethereum. If you're still holding your Ethereum, please don't. Just sell it straight into Bitcoin. Get rid of it because this shit does, none of this sounds good. When you actually put it all together like this story did, you got eight co-founders and seven of them are gone and one of them doesn't even want to have anything to do with the industry ever again. It's just disgusting, man. Now, going, uh, uh, taking a little bit of a detour here, let's talk about John McAfee. Apparently, according to his uh, author of an upcoming biography, John McAfee was broke when he died. Uh, this is Matthew DeSalvo for Decrypt.co. Tech entrepreneur John McAfee was broke when he died, mostly because he blew his money on properties he didn't even live in, according to a biographer who worked closely with him. At one point, McAfee, who was found dead in a Spanish jail last month, aged 75, was worth $100 million, but when he died, all the money had been spent on, quote, absolutely bizarre properties, author Mark Eglinton said on, in a sun, Saturday Mail Online report. Eglinton, who will release a book on John McAfee's life later this year, spent months interviewing him while he was on the run. McAfee was due to collaborate with Eglinton on the upcoming book, but was unable to pay the fee requested for the biography the author told Mail Online. Oh my God. Cybersecurity pioneer McAfee was the founder of popular antivirus software McAfee. Later in his life, he became known for his crazy outburst, being the spokesman for crypto and his fiercely libertarian lifestyle. He also got into serious trouble with the law for tax evasion. He allegedly made over $23 million by promoting seven initial coin offerings described as pump and dump schemes by United States authorities. After being on the run for months, McAfee was arrested in Spain in October of last year. He was due to be extradited to the U.S. to face charges, but was conveniently found dead in his cell in, a, in an apparent suicide. Eglinton told Mail Online that McAfee was in serious financial trouble at one point and probably lied about how much money he really had. 
He added that the amount requested for the biography was not a large amount and McAfee couldn't even pay that. Quote, my financial situation is worse than yours, he reportedly told Eglinton. Quote, rather than pretending he didn't have it, I think he was pretending he did, Eglinton said in an interview. Decrypt first reported the details of McAfee's crypto promotions in April of 2019. (coughs) The entrepreneur sought up to 20% of the tokens issued in a variety of ICOs in exchange for his public endorsements, which would have made him millions of dollars. U.S. authorities then alleged that McAfee didn't pay taxes from 2014 to 2018 and that he routed income through cryptocurrency accounts in another person's name. McAfee then went on the run for six months before he was arrested by Spanish authorities late last year. Eglinton's book, No Domain, The John McAfee Tapes, will be released in December. So since he couldn't pay, (laughs) this is me now, the the article's over. Since McAfee couldn't pay for the biography, but the biography is going to be released anyway, does that mean that the author gets to take the profits from the book? I mean, is there any kind of estate that John McAfee left behind? Is there any is there any barring of the of the biographer to be able to do this? I mean, I it's, it seems fine to me. It's just it's kind of a bizarre situation that there wouldn't be like some kind of estate lawyer who says, "No, no, no, no. You ain't releasing that and if you do, you got to pay the estate what what John McAfee was going to get out of that. So I I don't know, man. It, the whole thing is the whole thing is bizarre. But I really wish they would have described some of these quote unquote bizarre properties, right? Because oh God only knows what kind of property would be considered bizarre that John McAfee would have purchased. Okay, COVID nineteen stimulus checks fueled modest jump in Bitcoin price last year, says the Cleveland Fed. This is Coindesk, and it's written by Danny Nelson. The first round of stimulus checks in the United States in April 2020 fueled a significant but modest bump in Bitcoin trading volume and price, according to a study from the Federal Reserve's Cleveland branch that was posted Friday. Central bank researchers estimated the government's $1,200 stimulus checks sent to Americans during the COVID-19 pandemic fueled a 3.8% jump in trading volume and a 0.7% rise in price. Overall, they estimated just 0.02% of the stimulus money ended up in Bitcoin. Framed against Bitcoin's wild volatility, these figures just don't add up to much. Uh, Further noting a 0.07% permanent price increase, the researchers said their findings are modest compared to the 4.6% standard deviation in Bitcoin's daily price swings. Nevertheless, the researchers said the jumps were statistically significant. The findings add some hard data to lockdown era whispers of a government-fueled surge in $1,200 Bitcoin buys. Those purchases were happening, the researchers found, but almost exclusively amongst the young, single investors with moderate incomes. Quote, this is consistent with the picture of a typical Bitcoin investor painted by surveys, the researchers noted. Groups with a more acute need for stimulus payments like family and the unemployed did not ape in, they found. Japan and South Korea also saw measurable bumps in their Bitcoin markets after their government's respective stimulus rounds, according to the researchers. Policymakers should not be concerned that crypto markets will gobble up future stimulus payments, the researchers said. All right, so didn't do anything, right? Why are you taking the time writing about it? Don't look at what they say. 
look at what they do. So here we have a bunch of a bunch of people, a bunch of researchers over at the Cleveland Federal Reserve Branch. It's not like Bob's Backyard Bank. You know, it's not like they they pulled some analyst, you know, out of JP Morgan or something like that who's like some kind of junior, you know, junior pleb to do this. No, no, no. These are researchers that are employed by the Cleveland Federal Reserve. And they actually had to spend their time hours and hours and hours going through a whole stack of data to bring to you the conclusion that the stimulus didn't really pump Bitcoin that much. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. That's not the point. The point is they actually had these people sit down and do an in-depth study on what happened to the stimulus checks and did it or did it not go into Bitcoin. The fact that they spent the time, the fact that they, they, they got paid what they get paid to do this means that somebody somewhere is kind of worried and they're trying to make sure that people believe that <clears throat> there's nothing to see here. And I don't buy it. I, I, I don't buy it for one second. I think that it did a lot of that stimulus money far over what they say did get, get into Bitcoin, although I can't prove it. It's just a gut feeling and that's okay. But um, the, real, the real story here is the fact that they wrote a story about it at all. The fact that they sat down and, and published a study. The fact that the study was even was commissioned. That, that, that's way more important here than what actually happened with the stimulus money and the question of whether or not it went into Bitcoin. Look at what they do, not what they write. Let's run numbers. Flammable liquids taking it on the chin, dudes. Oil. West Texas Intermediate down 2.85% this morning, trading at $69.76, well below the $70 mark. Uh, Brent North Sea likewise getting its ass handed to it, 2.6% <clears throat> to the downside, coming in at $71.67. Natural gas, however, doing just fine, 1.7% to the upside, coming in at $3.73 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline has dropped by 2.24%, $2.20 a gallon, if I'm reading that right. So before we get into shiny metal rocks, the question is, why? Well, I got it for you right here. Hold on here, man. OPEC oil deal sends prices lower, and this could be a buying opportunity. This is out of CNBC. Oil prices fell more than 2% on Monday afternoon during Asia hours after OPEC and its allies agreed to end oil production cuts. That's what's going on. OPEC reached a deal. Finally, they finally reached a deal and all the oil production cuts are now gone. So we know what that means for OPEC and the OPEC countries. What does it mean for, for North American and specifically the United States oil production facilities? Does it mean that our production cuts get to end? And I don't see anything in this particular article about that, and I'm not going to read the whole one. 
But these kind of, you know, this kind of slide over the last few days, pretty much all last week in the oil prices kind of needed like a little explanation as to what was going on. And during last week, they couldn't get a deal and that was causing oil prices to slide. And then they finally come to a deal, which means that there's going to be a lot more oil on the market and that's caused prices to slide. What does the future hold for oil? I don't know. The, I mean, it depends, I guess it depends on production versus consumption. And if they continued this lockdown bullshit, we may end up with a glut of oil again. And that's not really good for, for anybody. But if you're wondering what's going on with flammable liquids, that's, that's what was going on. Now, shiny metal rocks, gold down over half a point, $1,804.30. Silver is down 1.5% to $25.40. Platinum is down 2.6%. Copper down 1.76% and palladium, meh, down a quarter of a point. Agricultural futures are mixed, but here's the problem. Wheat, soybeans, and corn are all up, and some of them up considerably, like corn is up 1.59%, wheat is up one and a quarter percent, soybeans themselves are up three quarters of a point. Why is this important? Because all three of those go into general food that you buy at the grocery store. So the food prices are going to continue to rise. Not only that, but soybeans and corn especially make up a significant amount of feed stock for confined animal feeding operations, which I think are unholy and should be struck down by lightning. But hey, you know, more power to you. If you want to feed corn and soybeans to, to cattle to get meat production, you're feeding them something that they were never designed to eat in the first place because they're designed to eat grass and not corn and soybeans. You know, more power to you. You want to keep doing that shit, I guess you go right right ahead. But for those of us that buy meat in the grocery store and we can't source grass-fed beef because we just can't source it where we are, that, that happens, meat prices are going to go up too. Just that's why it's important, guys. That's why it's important. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Oh, all the indices are down considerably. Dow futures are down one point, uh, one percentage point, which is reflected in a $352 uh, point decline. Well, 352 points, we'll call it. Uh, Dow futures coming in at 34,211. S&P futures likewise down 0.83%. NASDAQ futures down 06 and the winner is S&P Mini is down over one and a half points. It's going to be a bloodbath as the markets open this morning. Uh, all the interest rate or all the bond prices have risen. Uh, 30-year futures is up 0.76%, 10-year up 0.27%, uh, five-year up 0.13%, and the two-year scant 0.01%. let us talk about real money. I got the price at $31,411.95. There were 179,000 Bitcoin transactions performed in the last 24 hours, which is 7,459 transactions on average per hour with 252,000 BTC being sent over the last 24 hours. That's 10,539 BTC sent every hour on the hour with an average transaction value of zero. zero. Average transaction value is 1.4 BTC. Median transaction value 0.021 BTC or about 650 bucks. Block times are low. We had a difficulty adjustment apparently. Uh, nine minutes and 25 seconds. 
only, oh my God, I, this may be a mistake. So take it with a grain of salt. Uh, let's see, 0 0.09 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis. That's 0 0.09. That's low, which is why I'm thinking that there may be a mistake because that seems a lot lower than what we're seeing in, in mempool, which yeah, arguably is empty and stuff like that. But my God, 0 0.09 on a per block basis for fees? 14.17 BTC have been taken in fees over the last 24 hours, and we have had a 3.48% drop in hash rate, bringing us down to 98 exahashes per second. Dogecoin standing at 17 cents. This is the lowest I've seen Doge in quite, quite some weeks, honestly. Now, Little aside, apparently Elon Musk changed his, his Twitter avatar to Doge something. I don't know. And it caused the, I saw a couple of news stories that I was thinking about reading, but um, because it was just solely about Doge, I was like, no, I, I've, already, I've already done an Ethereum one. So I don't want to get you guys too pissed off at me. <clears throat> but the headlines were that the price of Doge spikes to 20 cents because Elon and I look at it, I look at it, the chart, and it's laughable. Yes, there's a spike and an immediately trailing back to exactly where the fuck it was. Why? Because nobody gives a shit about Doge. I saw another story that was talking about how it's transaction spike. Uh, yeah, the transaction spiked. I, we saw this on Bitcoin. We've seen this on, we've seen this on, on, all kinds of shit coins. When people are trying to pump up activity, they just do a whole bunch of, you know, fake transactions. I mean, they're real transactions, but they don't go anywhere. They just like rotate through wallets and end up back with a, the same person that actually started the whole mess in the first place, just to make it look like there's some kind of activity. Man, this Elon thing in Doge is, is so old. He, I don't know. I mean, I mean, if John McAfee can get in trouble, for all these ICOs that, that he was uh, pumping himself, how come they're not coming after Elon? You know, why is he so, why is Elon such a damn darling? Fuck that guy, I swear to God. Anyway, Clark Moody is showing almost no activity in the mempools. There are apparently 2,350 transactions waiting on one block to clear. We've been clearing, we've been clearing the, the mempools left and right lately. Um, let's see, we have... A market capitalization of $587 billion, which is just over 5% of gold's entire market cap. You can still get 17.4 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,760,610.25 BTC at a price that Clark Moody is reflecting at 31,300. 1,873.6 of those are in the Lightning Network. And that is a $58.6 million in, val in capacity value being run over 12,723 nodes with 56,606 channels that we can actually see. 69% of the Lightning Network is now being run over Tor, which is matching its all-time its all high that we saw a couple of weeks ago. There are 1,292.93 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that's being run over 7,408 Tor nodes that we can see and know about. That's going to do it for Vitals.
Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. We begin this one with uh, this letter that this guy named Sahil got. Uh, what does it say? Hex.com has outperformed almost every other asset on the planet since launch 1.5 years ago. This is an actual letter. Where is this coming from? Oh, God. <clears throat> okay. This is at Sahil Co. And Co is spelled C in the letter or, or the number zero. S-A-H-I-L, big C and a zero. Uh, he says he's got a picture of this letter from Hex sitting on his table. And of course, he's got his, his address blocked out, but he's got his name on it. So there's this nice looking letter in a brown envelope with the hex symbol in the top left corner. And it's a, it's a very nice looking letter, in fact. And Sahil says, this is because of Ledger, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, probably. So what's in the letter? Well, well what's in the envelope is this letter here from hex.com. And it's just, it's like, it's it's the same shit that you get when somebody like finds out that you may own a property and they're telling you how you're going to be able to sell it for like millions of dollars and there is or the next investment opportunity yes fucking hex is sending out physical envelopes stuffed with a letter that tells you all this bullshit about hex and none of it's true it's just flat ass lies $100 of hex 500 days ago is now worth $95,000 it's not, I mean, it's like you may be able to get away with that by just saying, well, look at the price and, and do multiplication, but there's much more to this than that. This is just an artificial pump and dump from, from Richard Hart. If you don't know who Richard Hart is, you need to go look up his history because he's got a, he's the guy behind Hex. He's got a really checkered past. He came, he's, he was one of the, one of the first ones to operate under the following model. Come into the Bitcoin space as a Bitcoiner. Do outlandish shit. Get a whole bunch of followers and then start a shit coin and automatically start taking garbage craps all over Bitcoin, which is what got you into the space in the first place. He's nothing but a grifter, dude. Nothing but a grifter. There's your, uh, there's your daily train wreck. Now on to the news. Helen Parts. <clears throat> Bitcoin mining difficulty drops for a fourth time in a row. Here's the difficulty adjustment news. Cointelegraph. Amid the ongoing crackdown on cryptocurrency mining in China, mining new Bitcoin continues getting easier as BTC has experienced another mining difficulty drop. On July the 18th, the Bitcoin network posted its fourth consecutive negative adjustment of mining difficulty, dropping 4.8%, according to data from Bitcoin Explorer, btc.com. The latest mining difficulty adjustment occurred at block 691,488, reducing the difficulty rate from 14.4 trillion to 13.7 trillion, the lowest level recorded since June of 2020. The difficulty metrics have now almost halved over the past two months after reaching over 25 trillion in, on May of, uh, May of, I'm sorry, May 13th. So we, in order, we've had the following difficulty drops starting from this, pre, this last one to the rest before. We've had a 4.8% drop. We had the massive 27.9% drop. 
Before that was a 5.30% drop, and before that was a 15.97% drop. But right before that, there was a 21.53% increase in difficulty. So those are the last five min, uh, mining, <coughs> mining difficulty adjustments. The latest adjustment down follows a series of consecutive difficulty drops that started with a nearly 16% decline on May the 29th. Further negative adjustments uh, continue with, yeah, we already know, I, I went through that. Bitcoin mining difficulty is a measure of how hard it is to mine a BTC block with a higher difficulty requiring additional compute power to verify transactions and mine new coin. Bitcoin's mining difficulty adjustment occurs every 2016 blocks or about every two weeks as Bitcoin is programmed to self-adjust in order to maintain a target time of 10 minutes per block. Okay, that's where I want to end it there. Why? Because when I, when other, when normies read stuff like this, they're going to go, oh man, it was a difficulty drop. <gasps> Another difficulty drop. Oh my God, it's a mining death spiral. And I guarantee that that's what you're going to start hearing again. Like we haven't been here three times before, if not four or five, but at least three times before we've heard about this shit. Let's all say it together. Bitcoin is performing exactly as it was designed to perform. That's bullish. It's not broken. It's doing exactly what it needs to do to maintain 10 minute blocks. Why are 10 minute blocks important? Because if you are not averaging 10 minute blocks over a longer period of time, then your emission schedule of Bitcoin does not match what was laid out in the white papers. We want 10 minute blocks and that's the governor. That's sort of the, the, the faucet. That's what, that's what keeps the flow of Bitcoin more or less stable over averages of longer periods of time. In the shorter periods of time, you get more emitted and sometimes you get less emitted. But if you take it on balance and on average over longer and longer time scales, you get exactly what the emission schedule is supposed to be. And it's like, what, 6.1, 6.25 BTC per block is supposed to be emitted. That basically means 6.25 BTC are supposed to be emitted every 10 minutes. And that's what keeps the supply schedule nice and tidy. The difficulty adjustment is working just fine. If somebody's freaking out around you because we've had four consecutive difficulty drops, all you need to say is that means Bitcoin is working exactly as expected and has done exactly what has been expected of it for the last every single time that a difficulty adjustment occurs, either up or down. It means Bitcoin is working exactly as designed. If one of these difficulty adjustment periods went by and the difficulty didn't adjust, that's when you have a problem. That's when it's broken. And that would scare the piss out of me. And it has never done that. In 11 years of operation, Bitcoin has never missed a difficulty adjustment, whether up or down. Just keep that shit in mind, okay? It's important that we all keep this shit in mind. Uh, let's see. ARK Invest buys another $54 million in Bitcoin adjacent Square stock. Uh, Andrew Asmakov has this one for Decrypt. New York-based investment firm ARK Invest snapped up 225,000 shares of Jack Dorsey Square during last Friday's trade. According to data shared by ARK Invest in its latest newsletter, the purchase was made through the ARK Innovation ETF, 
and the ARC Next Generation Internet ETF, two of the firm's six actively managed exchange-traded funds. The two funds were topped up with 179,000 and 46,000 of Square stocks, respectively. Kathy Wood's firm also holds a stake in Square via the ARC Fintech Innovation ETF. Ahead of Monday's trading session, the three ETFs combined hold more than 7.2 million shares of the payment company, worth, which is worth more than $1.7 billion. Man, that's quite a bit. The addition of Square stock into the ARCs of portfolio came hot on the heels of Dorsey's announcement Thursday, in which he revealed plans for a new business focused on building a platform that would facilitate Bitcoin-based, non-custodial, permissionless, and decentralized financial services. Earlier this month, Dorsey also confirmed that the payment company is going to build a Bitcoin hardware wallet. On Friday, ARK Invest also added 214,000 shares of Coinbase. The purchase was completed via the ARK, uh, the ARKK, which was one of the above ETF funds, which now holds over 4 million shares in the cryptocurrency exchange worth $905 million. Though Square and Coinbase both offer users various crypto-centric features like buying and selling Bitcoin, each company also holds Bitcoin on its balance sheets. At press time, Square holds 8,200 Bitcoin, worth roughly $260 million at today's prices. Likewise, Coinbase revealed in February that it holds only 4,482 Bitcoin, worth a measly $141 million. God, uh... So, Ark Invest is Kathy Woods has kind of like come out come out of the woodwork over the last few months and has been buying up any exposure that she that she can get to uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoin related companies, whether whether or not because they hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet or they are in some way, shape, form, fashion working for Bitcoin in new you know creating new platforms or new financial services or whatever. So they just bought a whole shit ton more of Square. Again, that's bullish. That I mean, the, the price bear markets <clears throat> kind of reflect bullishness in building. For I've been in I've been in the space since 2015, and that's what I've noticed every single time. That you get all these companies that just they're they're just heads down and they build. Now they normally do this through thick and thin. But when the price goes up, the news stories are more centered around the price and less on what's going on in the building. When we enter into these consolidation periods and or bear markets, depending on what's going on, you get more about, you know, you get more about a lot of the co- what the companies are doing after people get exhausted of reading about, oh, the price went down again. This is when <clears throat> all the people are actually building that have been building. They never stopped building. But this is when you start hearing about it, okay? So they're always building in the background, and that's always bullish for me. Uh, crypto experts see Bitcoin replacing fiat money in 20 years. Erhan Karman is writing this for Cointelegraph. Bitcoin current price slump has failed to dampen some experts' optimism regarding the world's largest cryptocurrency. In a new survey by personal finance comparison platform Finder.com, Half of the respondents believe Bitcoin will surpass fiat money or central bank issued currencies by 2040. While the sampling is arguably narrow, Finder.com says the report is based on a panel of 42 cryptocurrency, quote, experts. 
It shows that Bitcoin's price crash from April's all-time high didn't impact the long-term perspective of crypto professionals. The survey reveals that 50% of the respondents expect to see the moment that Bitcoin overtakes global finance, also known as hyper-Bitcoinization, within the next 20 years. One-third of participants believe the event will occur between, uh, before 2035, while 44% uh, predict that Bitcoin will never become the dominant form of global finance. El Salvador's move to recognize Bitcoin as legal tender is just the beginning of the developing nation's adoption of BTCs as the primary currency, a majority of respondents say. 33% of the crypto experts expect the original cryptocurrency to become the most common form of money in developing countries within the next 10 years. Another 21% believe that we will see the adoption, but it will take 10 years or more. One thing panelists do agree upon is the environmental concerns surrounding Bitcoin mining. A whopping 93% expects that green energy debate will continue to hurt Bitcoin with 31% believing that energy consumption will significantly impact the price. Yet, more than half of the experts don't think moving to an environmentally friendly proof-of-stake model is the answer, despite the potential price repercussions, as 66% of respondents called the proof-of-work model a necessary evil. In an exclusive interview, Kraken Head of Growth, Dan Held, told Cointelegraph that Bitcoin has a good chance of becoming the world's reserve currency, but it will take at least 10 years. He said that in developing countries, Bitcoin is mainly valuable for avoiding censorship, while in the Western world, Bitcoin is attractive as a hedge against central banks' money printing. Yes, that's not entirely a disagreeable sentiment from Dan Held there, at least, or at least it's not disagreeable from me. I tend to agree. Um, we're gonna. I, I still. I still stand on the. Uh, I'm gonna die on the particular. This particular hill. The West does not need Bitcoin right now, although it actually does. The people in the West. You need Bitcoin, but it doesn't look like you need Bitcoin because Visa works, Mastercard works. The people that don't have banks are not really you know, given a shit about by the people in the United States and Canada that do have banking accounts. There's a wide separation between those two groups of people. <clears throat> so therefore, I don't expect the West, right? I don't expect the West to feel the need for Bitcoin like third world developing countries. So I always look south of the Texas border, all the way down to the tip of Argentina and the tip of Chile. I'm also looking at the entire continent of Africa. These are the people, and there's other places like the Baltics and the Balkans and stuff like that that need it too. But those, the Central and South America and Africa, I got, I am fixated upon. These are the people that really need this shit and they need it now. And they're the ones that recognize that they need it. See, that's the difference. They actually recognize that they need this. And they are adopting it and they are getting into it. Whereas people in the West, we're just laying around on our couches watching sports ball and eating chips and watching our kids get fat while they basically watch the screens. That's what we're doing. The people in Central and, Central and South America and Africa are not doing that thing. So let's move on. El Salvador may issue its own stablecoin. Oh, you knew it was coming, bro. You knew it was coming. Oh, man. Dude. Oh, God. Oh, jeez. Oh, 
it hurts, man. It it just absolutely hurts, dude. But you knew it was coming, didn't you? You knew there was going to be a shoe to drop with the El Salvador big, uh, Le Bitcoin, and that shoe is now dropped. And check it out, dude. The brothers are involved. <clears throat> this is out of CoinDesk. It's written by James Rubin. The El Salvador government has plans to launch a native cryptocurrency that consumers will be able to use for services. Latin American digital newspaper El Faro reported on Friday night. Ibrahim and Youssef Bukele, the brothers of the country's president, Naib Bukele, told uh, prospective investors that the cryptocurrency, which is currently referenced as the Cologne dollar, would be introduced by the end of 2021, according to the report, which cited video recordings of the brothers discussing the proposal with these investors. Man, every, every red flag should be raised upon the mast at this point. The brothers said <clears throat> that they represented the president, according to the report, which was also based on documents that El Faro had obtained. The news comes weeks after the Central American country's government overwhelmingly approved the president's Bitcoin law, which will treat the original cryptocurrency as legal tender and require all businesses to accept it as payment for goods and services by September. So that's all there is for this particular article. There's not much more to be said about it, but I'm going to. <laughs> I've got people in my Twitter feed, because uh, I post these stories to my Twitter feed and compile them uh, to be able to read to be read on air <clears throat> and a couple of people got back to me and some, you know, some people said, Oh, well, of course it was going to happen. These are scumbags. It's shit coin, blah, blah, blah. Other people have gotten back to me saying, well, maybe they're hedging against what happens if the United States somehow intervenes in the ability for El Salvador to obtain us dollars because El Salvador is a U.S. dollarized country. So uh, you know, they don't have their own currency. They haven't had it since, I can't remember when they got off, like 86 or something like that. I can't remember when, but it's been a long time. They just use dollars, right? So what happens? What happens if in this transition, transitional period, the United States, I don't know, Federal Reserve and the United States Navy collude to basically bomb the living fuck out of El Salvador and, not be, and make sure that they can't get U.S. dollars in physical form of any kind? you know, or even in digital form and just cut off the country. Well, okay, that actually makes sense to have some sort of backup plan, but I still think it's a shit coin. I still, but I didn't see it coming. I mean, I, I, I kind of knew something was on the horizon, but I just, I got to admit, and it shouldn't have, but this shit caught me by surprise. Uh, let's, let's move on. I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I know how I feel about it. Now, ending, uh, ending this morning, let's do this one. Thor chain is tapping its treasury to repay $5 million in Ethereum after they got attacked. Jeff Benson has it for decrypt. Thor chain, a decentralized liquidity protocol for trading crypto across different blockchains, promised via Twitter that users affected by a $5 million hack yesterday would be fully compensated. That's all I got to say about it. This is this is all that sushi swap DeFi bullshit on Ethereum, and yet one more time it's been hacked, and yet one more time they're promising that they're going to give the money back, and one more time we're not going to hear dick about it. Have you heard a single word from anybody, anybody at all, 
from all of the previous attacks on all these different shit chains on DeFi where the investors or whatever you want to call them, these people actually got their money back because I haven't. And I doubt seriously that we're going to hear about Thorchain and this particular attack again as to whether or not they actually paid out, whether or not they actually paid out the proper people. I don't, you know, it's just not going to happen. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. All right, it's Monday, ladies and gentlemen. We started off afresh. We start off anew. Let's check in with Dad Says Jokes. The adjective for metal is metallic, but not so for iron, which is ironic. Yeah, it was a good one. If you want to uh, help support the show, and I would enjoy help supporting the show, uh, use podcasting 2.0 technology. It's honestly, I think it's the coolest way to actually support podcasters. And I, I want to see that. I uh, There's two things. One, I'm asking for your support. But two, I would like to listen to podcasts without advertising. I, I, I'd like, you know, and there, honestly, there's just... You know, setting up Patreon, which I may actually, you know, I may actually do. I'm not excited about it, but, you know, some people just, that that's just the way that they want to operate. But I really would, I really would rather podcasting 2.0 apps like uh, Sphinx Chat and Breeze Wallet, B-R-E-E-Z, inside the wallet, there's actually a podcasting app in, in, in both of these wallets or both of these applications, you can listen to the podcast directly through that particular app, whether it's Breeze or Sphinx, and you can stream me Satoshis at the same time you're listening to me, and you can set the bar. If you're going to do this, be sure to set the bar to something like, you know, something low. I had a guy that uh, somehow or another, his app got reset, and it, he didn't check, and he was streaming me way more Satoshis than he wanted. I offered to give them back, and he said, no, that's okay, dude, don't worry about it, it was my mistake. But remember, the podcasting 2.0 technology and the apps that go along with it, are it's all new. This is brand new, which is why I wanna promote it, but also, I also wanna you know, make sure that I, you know, fair warning, be sure how much you're paying me because you're paying me every single minute and those sats are being streamed directly to my lightning node and the the uh, well yeah directly to my lightning node and i i just would hate to see you know anybody else actually pay me more than what they think it's it's worth but if you want to support the show this is honestly my favorite way of of people supporting the show because i get to just look at my lightning node and I can do it on my phone. I can attach my phone to my lightning node and I'm just like, no matter where I'm at, I can just like check and look at transactions and it's like, yep, there's another one, another one, another one, another one. And it's awesome. It's we never lived in a time like this before. And that's why I want, want to promote podcasting 2.0 technology, Breeze and Sphinx. There's a whole bunch of other ones. Just research podcasting 2.0 and you'll find them and stream me sats and I'll stream you my dulcet tones and I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.